Well, children, I'd like you to entertain three absurdities with me. You know what an absurdity is? I probably should have wondered. An absurdity is something that's silly, something beyond silly. I want you to imagine taking a blind person to Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. You walk into the chapel and they look at the, uh, the paintings that are on the ceiling above. It's one of the most famous works of art of all time. Children, would a blind person be able to enjoy Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel? No, you could describe for them what was happening, but they couldn't see it, could they? Or imagine going to an amazing concert, but taking a deaf person to it. Yes, perhaps the deaf person might feel some of the reverberation. They might sense that there's some sound going on. They might feel the rush of the crowd. They might feel in their chest the thrum of the bass. But children, would that guest of yours, your deaf friend, be able to enjoy all the nuances of an amazing concert? Children, let's have a third one. What is your favorite meal that your mother cooks? What's your favorite one? Just answer it in your head. Just answer it in your head. I want you to imagine getting that in a little Tupperware bowl, whatever that thing might be, and taking it down to a funeral home and opening up a casket and trying to feed your mother's favorite dish to a dead person. Would that work? No. Now, what we are seeing in the book of Exodus are blind people treated to some of the most amazing sights, and deaf people treated to some of the most amazing sounds, and dead people who can't enjoy the bread that God gives them every day. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have mouths to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, they're alive. They have sight, and they have ears. But they need God to do something extra special within. Because we are all born blind and deaf, and dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins, we are no better off than those Israelites were. And we, too, need God to do transforming work inside if we're to see and benefit from his amazing grace. Now I had you turn to Exodus 16. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus, if you're joining us. We're journeying through the book of Exodus together. I would say it's a verse-by-verse exposition, but we've been taking it more like section-by-section. And we've arrived today at Exodus 16, and as Joe read in our hearing this morning, God is going to begin to provide daily bread, daily sustenance for the people. But let's introduce this very briefly. In the book of Exodus, we are now in a series of five impossibilities. This is the second of those five. You might remember that last week they came to bitter water. Today, there's no food. Next week, there's no water. Then there's a military crisis. And then there's civil chaos. And each one of these events is an impossible situation where the Israelites need God to perform a miracle. And in each case, the people are blind to the pattern. God raises a need 
highlights it for them. It's an impossible thing that they can't provide for themselves. And then God comes through with a miracle to show them that he is sufficient to meet their needs. They don't, they haven't yet picked up on the pattern. We read right here in the first verse that they have journeyed from the from one place to another, and now they're in the wilderness, and it's the 15th day of the second month. This is roughly 45 days now since they've left Egypt. Roughly 45 days. They've been gone about six weeks. And now that they've been gone six weeks, this is starting to create a massive problem for the people of Israel. And the massive problem is this. They are running out of food fast. Now, everybody, we need to remember the scope of this migration of people. Most Bible commentators will tell you that there's about 2 million people. About 2 million people. That's roughly the size of Salt Lake City and Ogden put together. Or roughly the size of Salt Lake City and Provo put together a large group of people. There's all sorts of needy people. Elderly people, nursing mothers, people who are in dire straits. And the dietary needs for 200 million people is astonishing. I have some stats up here for you to see, just so we can get a sense of the scope of how much food they need on the daily. If they were to eat beef, if they were to eat beef or lamb, they would need 4,500 cows every single day. Or they would need about 90,000 sheep every single day. Imagine Rice Eccles Stadium, the home of the Utes football team fill every seat in the stadium instead of with a person, fill it with a lamb. And then have all the lamb, then have 45,000 more lambs on the field down below. And that's how many lambs Israel would have to slaughter every single day. That's a huge amount of food. Or they need this. They would need 850,000 sacks of flour. 850,000 sacks of flour. Or, if you want to think of the vegetable needs, the fruit and vegetables. Now, I know if you're a child like me, you might wonder, well, don't calculate the vegetables for me, okay? I'm, I won't be taking any of that daily allotment. I'll just stick with the fruit. But if you were to calculate fruits and vegetables, you would need 4,500 pickup trucks filled with fruits and vegetables every single day. It is a massive amount of food. The people had taken a lot of food with them on their journey. It's really astonishing that they would have even had as much food as they did, that they'd made it as long as they did, six weeks now. And whatever stocks they took with them are dwindling, and the people are starting to get worried. Now, bear in mind, they haven't yet missed a meal. They haven't crossed that threshold yet. But they're in a desert place, and they have these massive food needs every day, and they're looking around them. They, they, they may as well be in the Sonora Desert. And they're saying, where, where are we possibly going to get as much food as we're going to need? And even if we only need this amount of food, our animals need food. 
Our kids need food. Our elderly need food. We need food. The animals need We are in desperate straits for a regular supply of food because of the scale of what we're going to need on the day. And when the people get a sense for how much food they're going to need, and if they start consuming their animals, how quickly they're going to run out, that is when the people begin to grumble. And that brings us to our first point of the day, a grumbling people. In verses 1 through 3, we see that the people begin to grumble. And I want us to notice that it's unanimous grumbling. It says the whole congregation is murmuring. The whole congregation is angry. Their stomachs are being threatened to be empty. They're worried about a possible famine. Now, these, it's a very real threat, and I think we can sympathize with them in that hunger, especially death by hunger, or, or community-wide starvation and famine, is a terrible ordeal. And they're worried about it, and they begin to all, to a man, to a woman, begin to grumble. And I want us to notice that it's targeted grumbling. The text is specific. It says they were grumbling against Moses and against Aaron. Now, you may have heard of the phrase, a scapegoat. That is actually a biblical allusion to something that hasn't been written yet in the book of, in the book of Leviticus. But even though the scapegoat hadn't been invented yet, Moses and Aaron are the scapegoats. They are the ones in charge. And the people have reasoned that, okay, God can do these miracles. God can split the sea. God can destroy Pharaoh's army. God can turn the bitter water sweet. But maybe it's Moses and Aaron that have messed up. They definitely have messed up along the lines. Moses is not so fast. No, no. He tells them in verse 8, it's not against me or Aaron that you're grumbling against. You're grumbling against the Lord. Because the Lord put Aaron and me in a position of leadership. The Lord is leading us with the cloud. The Lord is leading us with the pillar of fire. You're not, you're not ultimately mad at us. You're mad at the Lord. And Moses is essentially saying, let's call a spade a spade. You're not mad at us. Let's lay it at the feet of the one who's ultimately responsible for this here, grumbling at the Lord. So try as they might to say, oh, no, no, no. We're only grumbling at Moses and Aaron. Moses says, no, this is a grumble against the Lord. I have here that it's wistful. I don't know a better word for it. They, it's grumbling. They say, you can read here. It says, they, they say, oh, that we were back in Egypt as slaves, where we had full pots of meat and we could eat as much as we wanted. It was a regular chukarama every day as slaves in Egypt. What they're forgetting is that they were being whipped. They were being hurt. Their firstborns were being slaughtered. What they also forget is that Egyptians had just undergone a series of plagues, and they were facing the very real possibility of famine in their own right. There was nothing back there for them to go to. Only more famine, only more starvation. And do you think those Egyptians would give the precious little food that they had to their former slaves? I think not. But they're wistful. They're like, oh, back in the good old days, six weeks ago. They're so quickly forgetting. And then they're accusatory. They're making an accusation. I, I have here, it says, uh, go down with me to verse 3. 
Would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The word kill there is in a special verb form. And it's most commonly translated murder. You brought us out here to murder us. And your murder weapon of choice is starvation. You brought us out here to murder the whole assembly with a weapon. This is an accusation. You're a person of mean and poor character. You brought us out here to destroy. Now, Daniel, please don't, or Benjamin, please don't advance the slide. These people are ungrateful, unkind. They're accusing the Lord of malicious intent. They have forgotten all the things that the Lord has done for them. They're grumbling against God's leader for no cause. And they say, we want to go back to being slaves. Because at least there we would die with our bellies full. And God breaks in. And God says, I've heard your grumbling. And pretend you don't know what happened next. Pretend for a moment you don't know what happened to And you're hearing God say this for the very first time. I've heard your grumbling. And I'm about to rain down. What do you think is coming? Fury, fire, judgment. And what does God say instead? I'm going to rain down. What grace, what mercy, what kindness from God. And that brings us to our next point. Now we can advance the slide. A gracious God. God says, I'm about to reign. And I want you to know, that has precedent. Back in Genesis 7, God says, I'm going to rain down a flood of judgment and wipe out the earth. In Genesis 19, he says, I'm going to rain sulfur and fire on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Exodus 9, God says that he rains giant hailstones on the people of Egypt in his judgment for what they've done to his people. And so here, three times in a row, we've gotten this idea of rain, and it's always in a form of judgment. When God says he's going to rain, you don't normally want to be under that rain. But here God says, I'm going to rain down something special. I'm going to rain down something incredible on you. He's going to rain down bread from heaven. And he says, I'm going to rain this bread down from heaven. Now, we're advancing a little bit into the text because it's not until the very end we find out what they call it. They call it manna. They call it manna. Now, we're given a small explanation for what it's like. It's granular like coriander seeds. Now, it's white. It tastes like honey. It's sweet. We're told that it could be prepared in a variety of ways. It can be baked. It can be crushed. It can be boiled. Now, how many of you have actually seen or could produce in your mind what a coriander seed looks like? I see a couple, okay? I had no idea what a coriander seed looked like until I looked it up this week. I used to think of a coriander seed as very something small and flaky. 
because that's kind of how manna is described. At least that was my imagination. A coriander seed is more like a pod that's slightly smaller than a pea. Okay? So maybe a good parallel would be the corn snow that we get here in the shoulder seasons. Kind of a little bit bigger, a little bigger than a regular flake of snow, kind of a round ball, a little bit smaller than the size of a pea. So that it was white and flaky. Now, I want you to know that commentators have have spilled a lot of ink trying to decipher what it was like. And I I do think I'm I mean, I'm very curious. Maybe the Lord will allow us to taste manna once we get to heaven. But the fact is, the Israelites made no attempt to describe it. You know what they called it? Manna, which is roughly translated as what? That's lit it's I've seen it translated, what is it? But it's, that's too much. The word is just, what? What? Question mark. It's, it's a mystery. It's a miracle. And that is exactly the point. And I want us to notice that when God provides this bread from heaven, it is a daily series of miracles. It's not just one miracle. It's a daily series of miracles for 40 years. We're told in the text that it's a miracle that it appears. It just appears overnight with the dew, these little coriander, the size of coriander seeds all over the camp, sufficient for 2 million people. All through the camp, all around the camp. It says that it won't keep overnight. They gather all of it, and God tells them, Eat what you're going to eat today. Get rid of the rest. It's not going to keep overnight. And some people, simply because this is how people are, you know, you, um, I saw, when, when we're told not to do something, there's some of us in the population that decides that's exactly what we're about to do. Okay, I'm in that crowd, okay? When my wife and I were first married, we would go places and there would be signs that would tell you you're not supposed to go in there. And she would say, why, why are we going in there? The sign says, don't go in there. And I said, why are you reading signs? <laughs> Let's just go in. It'll be fine. She broke me of that habit, okay? Um, I saw a video of these little kids, and they, they would have the kid face forward, and they had a choo-choo train set behind the kid that the child couldn't see, and it was covered with a blanket. I said, okay, here's the rule. Cannot look at what's behind you. And as they left the room, they would lift the blanket off and turn the train on. And behind this poor child is this choo-choo train. Choo-choo! They could hear it, but they were supposed to face forward, not look behind them. And these poor children, they put a timer on them to see how long it would take for them to look. All of them looked. It was only a matter of time. Well, God tells them, don't keep it overnight. So what do they do? They try to keep it overnight. And miraculously, it doesn't keep. It begins to stink. Worms get in it. Here's another miracle. God says, listen, Saturday is a Sabbath rest. Sabbath just means uh, Shabbat. It's rest. It's a day of rest. So what I want you to do is I want you to gather twice as much on Friday because 
even though every other day of the week it will spoil overnight, on Friday night it doesn't spoil. And then on Saturday, here's another miracle, it doesn't come. You don't get it because you gathered twice as much. The manna goes wherever Israel goes and doesn't go where Israel isn't. There's no explanation for it. God simply, nightly, with the exception of Saturday, Friday into Saturday, rains this bread on his people every night. And then, just to show you how gracious God is, I can just hear the people saying, let's kind of come back into the immediate text. The people are grumbling. We're running out of food. And God says, I'm going to rain bread on you in the morning. Of the most ungrateful among us, what would they say to that? But, but what? I'm hungry now. And to those people, God says, and tonight, I'm going to send quail. More quail than you can imagine. So for those of you who are who are hangry tonight, there will be plenty of quail. Go grab some and have a barbecue. Enjoy the poultry dinner on me. God is just so gracious, so kind. He's piling up blessing upon blessing upon these people. And that brings us to our next point. He gives them a very simple test. Now, God, of course, designs this test to reveal what's in the heart of Israel. And the test was simply this. He wants them to gather enough for the day, don't leave any over for night, and then on Friday, gather double so that they have sufficient for the rest day. And remember, we discussed this in Sunday school, a test is not designed to be a pass or fail kind of a thing. We have to kind of get that out of our minds. A test is simply a mechanism to show you what's in your heart. Kind of like when your engine light turns on and you go down to the auto zone, or perhaps you even own one, you put the tester on it. It's not that your engine is failing, you drove it down to the auto zone. You put the tester on it to find out what the tester reveals. There's something going on in there and you want to know the truth of it. And so, show me what's happening. And God gives them this test so that he can show them what's in their hearts. And what is revealed is rather ugly. This provision of manna, God supplying this manna, does a bunch of things simultaneously. I have three of them listed. Number one, the daily provision of manna reinforces daily dependence on the Lord. Because it wouldn't keep, because you couldn't preserve it long term, that meant a bunch of different things. You couldn't stockpile a bunch of manna and get ahead in life by selling it. You couldn't stockpile a bunch of it and harvest it in the ground and get a bumper crop and gain wealth by it. There was no black market for manna. There would just be more that it would appear tomorrow, and if you tried to keep it, it wouldn't keep. It prevented stealing. 
Why would you steal when something is right outside the door? And besides, if you stole it and kept it, it would be gone by the morning. You couldn't hang on to what you stole. This, this insistence of God that you would have to gather it daily and it wouldn't keep reinforced every day this daily dependence on the Lord. Now, it must be said that some of these character qualities are run in the face of other bits of Scripture that are that God says are helpful. So, for example, God tells us to go to the ant, you sluggard. Sow your fields. <laughs> Think ahead. Plan ahead. Stockpile some goods. That's what wise people do. But in this limited case, in these 40 years of wilderness wanderings, God wanted the people in this position of daily dependence as he was trying to massage that into the DNA of the man. You need me every my sophomore year, or my freshman year of college, I had a sophomore pre-med roommate, pre-med student. His freshman year was filled mostly with generals, and then he started to get into some of the medical stuff his sophomore year. And I asked him, his name was Robert. I said, Robert, as a pre-med major, what are you learning? And he said, I'm learning how close we are to death at every moment of the day. I said, well, that's... <laughs> well, God is trying to demonstrate into these people how close they are to the edge at all times and how quickly he's meeting their provision every single day. A second thing that this is doing is it creates a positive work ethic. The people had to get up and get it harvested before the sun got high. Once the sun got hot, it melted. God didn't bring it straight into their home. They had to get out of the house and go get it. Furthermore, the amount needed was deliberate, and it was a relatively significant amount. They were supposed to gather two quarts for every person in the house. Two quarts. I don't, if you think of the size of coriander seeds, that's quite a bit of work to get two quarts full. Family like mine, family of seven, that's 14 quarts. And on Fridays, 28 quarts. Four quarts in a gallon, that means I'm bringing home six to seven gallons of that stuff. Now, again, it's gracious, it's amazing provision. But the amount was designed to where the people would have to think ahead. The people would have to work for it. They'd have to get out there and get it harvested. It involved forethought. These are some of the other things God was trying to work in them. And then last, it reinforced rest. It reinforced a Sabbath rest. There was no Saturday gathering. And when God stipulated that rule, guess what the people did? They went out on Saturday and tried to collect it. And sure enough, it wasn't there. God, wanted, God was working this daily miracle into their lives so that they would see it play out. That brings us to our last point. Let's go down to verses 31 through 36. 31 through 36. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer, which is two quarts, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. 
so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generation. So here we end on a note of parents having something to point their children to. And when those children become parents, we have a generational reminder. God is very kind sometimes to give some sight to our faith. Though most of the time, we walk by faith. God wants this testimony. There was to be a container of it gathered. And yet another miracle. This container would be preserved. That manna would never melt away. That manna would never stink. There was only a few things in the Ark of the Covenant. There was Aaron's rod, which budded later. And there was the Ten Commandments. So think about that. In the Ark, in this box, the Ark of the Covenant, was placed the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and a representation of the leaders that God chose. Those were the three things. Those were the enduring testimonies of God in this time. Now, I've left a little extra time at the end because I have three lessons I want us to learn. Three lessons I want us to learn from Exodus 16. Number one, as we hinted at in the introduction, Exodus 16 reinforces humanity's or our ultimate need for the internal miracle of regeneration. Let me unpack that statement. I only have a small line that I can fit in. How many miracles, in, in this one scene alone, how many miracles are on display? The manna appears. The manna melts. The manna keeps on Friday. The manna doesn't appear. The manna goes over. On the weekly, you would see no less than 10 or 12 miracles every day you'd see a miracle from the Lord. And for all the miracles that those people saw, did those people benefit spiritually from it? No, they grumbled. They kept grumbling. They kept complaining. They saw God's provision in front of them all the time. And this is a stern reminder to us that even if God were to rain miracles down all around us, if he doesn't do something on the inside first, we can't see it, we can't hear it, we can't experience it. Even if you were part of a church that somehow pulled off miracles all the time, it would do you no good apart from the internal miracle that God does in our hearts to make us This is a really good lesson for parents. Okay? As parents, we can surround our children with the most ideal Christian circumstances possible. We can flood the word of God at them 
and we can put a hedge about our houses and keep as much evil out as we can. And we ought to do those things. But there's one thing our children need that we can't do. We cannot create faith in them. We cannot work in them the miracle that's required for them to be born again of the Spirit. And that can do one of two things to us. It can discourage us. So all this works for nothing? No, no. We don't parent biblically because it works. We parent biblically because it's right. And that's what God wants us to do. The second, more helpful response is we get on our knees and we pray. And we we remember that only God can do this work. And we beg the Lord daily to put faith in the hearts of our children. And yes, it's true, Lord. We have sheltered our children. Yes, it's true, Lord. We've exposed our children to your word. But only because you say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you've said this is the way that my children will get faith. So I'm giving them more word because I need you to do something miraculously in the heart of my child. Because God has to do something so dramatic in the hearts of people. We have to be patient for people who aren't of faith. We have to be patient with people who are outside the faith. Would you, would you get mad at a blind person for not seeing the beauty of a sunset? Would you grow frustrated with a deaf person because he didn't hear a beautiful musical note? That's silly. So instead of getting frustrated and angry with our world, we have to be praying for our world and trying to get the word of Christ to the world. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to save. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save us from our sins, and he's asked us to be ambassadors in that great and mighty cause. Telling people that they need this internal change. Number two. Exodus 16 boldly displays... God's loving intention for his people. It boldly displays God's loving intention for his people. Now, how many of you have gotten yourselves into this situation? Okay? You were pretty well convinced that God wanted you to do something. And so you started down that road. I'm going to go do what God wants me to do. Fast forward 45 days, fast forward six weeks, whatever it is, and suddenly it ain't working out the way you thought it was. Whatever you thought you were going to do, whatever you thought you had disintegrated in front of you. And suddenly now, what are you saying? You're saying, was I right the first time? 
did God really want me doing this? Was I, did I somehow get off the path? No, you didn't. The path that you're on is exactly the path God chose for you. And the hurdles that you're facing are the hurdles that God has chosen for you. Because his loving intention is to show himself strong in your behalf. His loving intention is to give you exactly what you need to get you through that trial, that test. And that he's raised your awareness of it is not intended for you to get angry at God or to look back at your own mistakes. But the life of faith says, I'm going to look forward expecting God to bless the situation. I'm going to look forward expecting God to do something miraculous even to help me. Now, you say, well, I'm not in Exodus 16. I'm not living with the people of Israel. I, I can't claim that. Yes, you can. You need to write down Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That's a blanket statement. So you say, well, what's the Lord's purpose for me? How do I know the Lord's purpose is good? How do I know it's not bad? Well, the verse goes on. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. What is the Lord's purpose for you? His steadfast love. His enduring steadfast love. And yes, there may come tests, there may come trials. But those are mere backdrops on which God will reign his love, his steadfast love. Psalm 138. And then third, Exodus 16 puts the need for things into perspective. Daily reliance on the Lord fosters faith, humility, and generosity. Faith, humility, and generosity. I want to focus on that last word, generosity. If, if you're relying on the Lord every day for what you need, and for a bunch of years you walk with the Lord and you see the Lord provide for you, and you suddenly come to the conclusion, wait a minute, God's got me covered for tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and somebody comes to you asking for something, are you more inclined or less inclined to hold it tightly? No. What you're saying is, oh, God's got me. Here. I'm going to be generous with you. I'm really kind to you. God's got me taken care of. I'm not worried about tomorrow. You need my help? You had it before you asked. What can I do? God's got me covered. Of course, this daily dependence requires faith. It requires humility to take it. It requires humility to take it. We all like to think that we've got our stuff together. We all like to think that we don't need God's help, but we do. And he says, here, you need this every day. And once we develop that pattern of daily dependence on the Lord, we can blossom with 
truly generous, humble, and kind people. Full of faith, knowing that the Lord has us covered day in and day out. But to get there, you have to have God do something first in your life. Otherwise, you're going to be a blind, hungry person grumbling at whoever speaks for God. Now, what is that thing that you need? You need the Lord to save you. You need the Lord to give you new life. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please save me from my sins. Please give me that new life the pastor's talking about. I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm going to find out. John 3, that's where you go to find out. John chapter 3. We'd love to explain more to you if you have any questions. Let's bow for prayer. Father, would you give us grace to depend on you daily? It's a grace to depend on you. You're so good. You're so kind. You rain so much goodness on us. We're so slow to see. We're so slow to appreciate what you do day in and day out. And so deliver us from our dullness. Deliver us from our blindness and deafness. If there be any in here who doesn't yet see, they don't have the new birth, send the Spirit rushing in their hearts to make them born again. May they cry out to you, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, Many of us have needs, major needs, financial needs, health needs, relational needs. And we're in the midst of relying on you daily, and that, that's a labor of faith. Give us grace for that, and help us to move forward, fully expecting you to meet our needs in your steadfast love. But we pray all these things in Jesus' name.